We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. And the Apostle Paul writes, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he that died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I was thinking of this message on the way to church this morning, and I got to thinking about this. We have liberty in America. Now, I know we like to say we have freedom, but see, I don't believe there's any such thing as absolute freedom. We have liberty. See, our freedoms are governed by others, right? And that's why we call it liberty. Let me give you an illustration. I can't get out here on the road and drive any way I want to, can I? Well, I guess I could, but I'd pay the price for it, wouldn't I? Why? Because there are laws that govern. I can't drive 100 miles. Well, I could, but again, I'd pay the price. 100 miles an hour, drive all over the road. And if I did that, if I claimed an absolute freedom to do that, that would endanger other people, wouldn't it? So you see, we have liberty in this nation, and we have liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, that liberty is not licensed to do as we want. Okay? Liberty is licensed to do as we need to do. Now there are some today in their version of so-called Christianity who want to separate the triune God. What do you mean they want to separate the triune God? Well, they want to say that the God on the left side of the Bible, they're talking about the Old Testament of course, is different from the God on the right side of the Bible, talking about Jesus and talking about the New Testament. They want to present Jesus as some sort of watered down, kinder, gentler version of the God of the Old Testament. And their version of Jesus doesn't condemn sin. Their version of Jesus doesn't really judge sin. Their version of Jesus just wants to sort of get along with sinners. You know, we'll work it all out. You work your own problems out. Well, let me give you some very unsolicited but quick advice in dealing with people like this. And it's the advice that the Apostle John gave in 2 John, verses 10 and 11. First of all, let me tell you this. If you ever run into these people, don't listen to them. Because their doctrine is straight out of the pits of hell. And here's what John said. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, talking about the doctrine of Christ, talking about the truth, receive him not into your house, and neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. When we encourage false teachers by saying, well, come back at another time, or well, you may be right, or however we may say something to encourage a false teacher, we are partaking of what they're doing. So uh, I didn't take any of their literature. I didn't say I believed like they believed. But when we encourage them, see, I've studied that, those two verses in Second John, 
And very literally, what John says is, don't even tell them have a good day. That's the idea. That's how to deal with false teachers. Look, we worship and serve one God who manifests himself in three personalities, very distinct personalities. Now, if you had been in Sunday school for the last several weeks, you would have known that. Brother Truman's been teaching that. We've moved on to something else. Now we've finished that study. But those personalities are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, God's triune nature is seen in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Hebrew word for God there is Elohim. Some people would say Elohim. Elohim. And literally, Elohim means three strong ones. Three strong personalities. One God, three strong personalities. Further, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God's recorded as saying this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let me ask you a question. Who's God talking to? I mean, it's just God there, right? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. God the Father speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And he said, let us make man very literally in our blood flowing, shadow casting image, which we intend to become, which shows you that the coming of Jesus was in the heart of God before he ever created man. Amen. You are an individual and I are too, okay? We are what? We are mind, we are body, and we are spirit. We're three people in one, okay? And God is the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament is seen in what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 7:14, and what the angel told Mary in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted as what? God with us. Now this was not the beginning of Jesus because he existed back in Genesis 1 1 with Elohim as a part of the triune God. But this is the beginning of Jesus coming in human flesh. And the angel sent from God said to Mary, this is going to be God with you. God the Son took on human form to come to this earth. And to say that Jesus feels differently about sin than God did in the Old Testament is wrong also. Now, we see a lot of record of how God dealt with sin in the Old Testament. That's a warning to us, folks. If God wiped out Israel, allowed their enemies to overtake them because of their unfaithfulness, do you think he's going to let me and you or this church just go along being unfaithful to him, not doing what he said to do, not standing for his word? God can bring chastisement upon his people. We'll talk about that in a little bit in a moment. But listen to what Jesus or what's said about Jesus and what Jesus said in John chapter 2. Now, if you don't know what's going on in John chapter 2 beginning in verse 13, the money changers are in the temple. You couldn't buy an animal to sacrifice in the temple with Roman money, so you had to convert Roman money to temple money. And the money changers had it figured out where they made a whole lot of Roman money for a little bit of temple money. Okay, so they were ripping people off in the name of religion. I'm so glad that doesn't happen today. <laughs> well, what's the matter? It, it does? <laughs> or am I that ignorant? No, it really does, you know. And they were ripping people off and they were making money off of the worship of God. 
And Jesus sees them and it says, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. How do you think he felt about that? In fact, the scripture says that as it was written, what had happened is the zeal of my father's house has eaten him up. Okay? So Jesus did not like the money changers there in the temple, ripping people off in the worship of God. But listen also to Revelation chapter 19. This begins in verse 11. You're familiar, should be familiar with this chapter. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and the armies which were in heaven followed him. I listened to a message this morning. The preacher said a lot of people today don't like the, the military references in the Word of God, the war references in the Word of God. Well, here it is right here in Revelation 19. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Listen to this. Here it is. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not the sissified Jesus of a lot of so-called modern Christianity, folks. This is God bringing his wrath upon this world that has rejected him. It's not the Jesus in many of today's religions. It is the God of heaven. Listen to verses 17 and 18 there in Revelation 19. This is an angel speaking. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Folks, God's judgment is coming upon this earth. It's coming upon this world. It's coming upon mankind who has rejected him. So now we move to our text. We have the image of God. We have the picture that Jesus and God, are the God of the right side of the Bible is the same as the God on the left side of the Bible. And he feels the same about sin as his father does. So we come to our text. And you know what it says? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We preach, teach, practice a doctrine called the eternal security of the believer. Amen. And we don't just believe it, it's real. It's, it's there in the Bible. It's true, okay? And I had a seminary professor tell me one time, and I agree with him, don't ever preach security without preaching the judgment seat of Christ. Amen. We have liberty in Christ. But we don't have the freedom just to do as we want to do so we can get away with it without any retribution. There are those in the religious realm that say a person can so sin that God will just take away his salvation. He'll kick them out of his family. They won't be his child anymore. But, you know, oddly enough, these people have figured out a way they can get it back if they ever lose it. 
you read Hebrews chapter 6. And chapter 6 of Hebrews says, it is impossible if they should fall away. If it were possible to lose your salvation, it would be impossible to ever get it back. You know why it says that's impossible? Because Jesus would have to go to the cross again and again and again every time somebody lost their salvation and got it back. We know that our salvation does not depend upon us. Our salvation depends upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if my salvation depended on me, I'd lose it in the next 20 seconds. Okay? But it doesn't depend on me. My salvation depends upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, and so does yours. And the only way we could ever lose it would be if Jesus could fail, and we know he can't fail. He's not going to fail. And so we are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have liberty. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand in this liberty. Don't let somebody tell you well there's a certain set of rules that you have to keep if you want to stay saved. Or you've got to do this or not do this so you don't lose your salvation. Stand fast in this liberty. I am a child of God. I repented toward God, put my faith in Christ. God saved me. I am his and I am his forevermore. Most of the religious world understands neither security nor liberty because they preach salvation by works and they have little understanding of grace. Now listen, salvation is totally by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And salvation cannot be a combination of works and grace. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 6. The apostle Paul's writing here to members of that church at Rome, and he's talking about salvation. He says, if by grace, then it is no more of works, Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You know what happens when you add works to grace for salvation? You destroy grace. I've used this illustration before. I don't know if it's a good one or not. But it would sort of be like you saying, I want to buy you a brand new 67, whatever they call $70,000 Cadillac, Brother Jim. And I said, well, you don't need to do that. Let me help. Here's a dollar. That's what our works are in relation to God's grace. They're nothing. We are saved by the grace of God. And we know the Bible to teach the security of the believer and liberty for the believer. And because we know that and because we preach that and because we teach that, we're accused, like Paul said, those in Romans chapter 6, Verse 1 where we're accused of continuing in sin that grace may abound. You know, the idea was that they were accusing some who believed in this thing called security and the grace of God. They were accusing them of saying, oh, you just believe that you ought to sin more and more so God can show more and more grace. Paul said, God forbid, don't even think that way. That's not why we have security. That's not why we have liberty so we can sin and God can show more grace. Now, I will say it's unfortunate that some who profess to know Christ as Savior live like they believe that. You know, there's some folks who profess Christ as Savior who live worldly lives, sinful lives, and they just cause the world to say, uh uh-huh, and if I believed what you believed, I'd go out and say I was saved and just do whatever I wanted to do also. 
But the eternal security of the believer and our liberty are given not so we may live as we want after salvation. They're given so we can better serve God. And that's why we have liberty and that's why we have security. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 tells us this. Don't use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't say I'm saved and I can do what I want and I can serve my flesh and I can please my flesh. No, no, no. That's, he says don't do that. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 in that we're told that we who are saved, we who are in the Lord's churches are not to allow our liberty to become a stumbling block to other people. In fact, what he says there in 1 Corinthians is that anything that is not forbidden by the word of God is lawful for me to do. It's okay for me to do. But he says not everything is expedient. Not everything builds up. And there might be some things that I, I want to believe I'm a more mature believer. I hope I am. I need to be, don't I? But there's some things that I, as a mature believer, might say, well, the Bible doesn't forbid that, and I can do that. But it might cause a new believer to sin against God. And so you know what the Word of God teaches? I ought to say, I'm going to forego that. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to cause a brother or sister in Christ to sin. And that's the teaching of liberty. That's the purpose of liberty and security. They're based in Christ's works, not man's work. And I said they're given so we can more effectively serve God. We're going to look very quickly at three motives for serving God that we see in these verses today. And the very first one is this, the anticipated rewards for the saved. The anticipated rewards for the saved. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe we ought to approach the Christian life with a certain degree of anxious anticipation. I'm living for the Lord. I get to wake up every day and see what God's going to do today. Okay? Has there ever been something you really wanted to do and the day came that you were going to do it? Wasn't there a little anxious anticipation there? A little excitement? Oh boy, I think I've told you before we, where we grew up, there was a park down below us and there was a little miniature golf course in that park. And if I ever found out we were going to go down there and play miniature golf, man, I'd just get so excited. I couldn't stand it. And that's the anticipation we ought to have about living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. Wherefore, verse 9, he says, Wherefore we Labor. You know what that word labor means? Well, it means work. It certainly does. But it has the idea of toil to the point of exhaustion. Paul said, we exert ourselves. You know, this thing of, well, I can get saved and join a church and sit on a pew till I die and go into heaven and have a lot of rewards. I'm not sure that's exactly the way we ought to do it, right? Amen. We exert ourselves. We labor. We live for the Lord. We witness to people. We let people see Christ in us. How is that produced? You look back at the first eight verses. It's produced by the confidence of Jesus Christ in us. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, he's talking about this fleshly body, were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. He said this house, this flesh that we live in is a tent. That's what a tabernacle is. What happens to tents? Well, they get old. <laughs> right? And as they get old, they wear out. 
and they get holes and they tear and different things happen to tents. How's your tent holding up, by the way? Now I'm talking about your body now, okay? It seems like the older I get, the more aches I find. You know, I wake up in the morning and find out there's places that hurt that I didn't even know were there. This tent is wearing out. But he said, don't worry about it. You've got a house. Now there's a difference between a tent and a house, isn't there? A tent is a temporary dwelling. A house is a permanent dwelling place. And he says, when your tent wears out and it dissolves, you're going to go to your home. And we know that to be heaven. He says, for in this, talking about this flesh, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God who also hath given unto us the earnest of his spirit. I don't know how many saved people I hear say, boy, I can't wait. Jesus is coming. If I die before Jesus comes, I'm going to go into the presence of the Lord. And as we, I don't know about you. I speak for me. As I look at this world, I say, boy, the Lord can't come soon enough. Amen. I mean, this world is rapidly, even quote, unquote, Christendom. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about the world's version of what a Christian is, is rapidly going farther and farther away from God. And folks, the only hope is the coming of Jesus and the salvation of our souls. And he said, in this body we groan. Oh, I want to, I don't know what the glorified body is going to look like, but I can't wait to get it, right? Just think how much better we're all going to look when we get the glorified body. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> At least somebody that's not, a, not satisfied with, well, never mind, I'll leave that alone. But it just speaks of knowing we're right with God. I'm doing what God would have me to do. And because we trust the Lord and his promises, we can look forward not only to eternal life, but we can look forward to rewards. I've shared with you before, there are at least five crowns named in the scripture that any child of God can gain. And we don't gain those crowns, we don't get those rewards so we can strut around heaven and say, look at me, why do we have them? Revelation chapter four, we're just gonna put them at the feet of Jesus. And we're going to worship and we're going to glorify our Lord in his presence. And that ought to thrill us. That ought to give us that excited anticipation. Why do we labor? Why do we do these things? Look what he says, that we may be accepted. Now, he's not talking about accepted for salvation here. You know what he's talking about? The idea of that word accepted is, is really well-pleasing. Why do you work so hard preparing a message, preacher, so everybody will come by you and say, good message after the... No. Listen, whether anybody shook my hand or said they liked the message or anything, I'd rather it be well-pleasing to God. Amen. I'd rather it be well-pleasing to the Lord Jesus because he's the one who is going to judge. So he said we labor so we can be well-pleasing to God. Do what God wants us to do. And that's another reason for anxiously approaching this thing we call the faithful life. I just wonder, because I thought of this while I was preparing this message, how many of us as God's people ask ourselves this question, is God well pleased with what I'm doing today? Now today we could say, well, God's pleased. We, we showed up for church. Well, if some folks show up for church, just show up for church. That's all they do. 
Some folks show up for church because they came to worship God. They came to praise God. So is God well, is he pleased with what I am doing right now? What about tomorrow? Is God well pleased with what I am doing? Remember what Paul asked the Galatian believers, and this is on a different subject, but he asked this, he said, for do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I please men, if that's my desire, if that's my goal, to please men, I should not be the servant of God. So I to live to please God. And he said, this ought to be our desire, this pleasing of God ought to be our desire whether we're present or absent. What's he talking about? Whether we're at church or not? No. Whether we're present in this flesh or whether we're present in, uh, in appearing before the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Whether we live in, in the body and we ought to please God and our lives ought to be when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ ought to be well pleasing to God. What he's saying is, look, seek to glorify God in your life so you can glorify him in your death. You know, there's some folks, it amazes me how many people are going to heaven. If you listen, I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit sarcastic here. I'm warning you. But if you listen to sermons that are preached at funerals, it amazes me, everybody's going to heaven. Doesn't matter what kind of a rascal they were in life. When it comes that time to say a few words over them after they have lived their lives, not always for Christ, and died, oh, he was, she, he, you know, whichever one was such a wonderful person. And they pleased God and they're going to heaven. I hope they were. But only if you've repented toward God and accepted Christ as Savior. Some think of God's approval only at the time of death. Okay? Absent from this earth. But we need to desire to be pleasing to God in everyday living. Amen. Because why? Because we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what he says. We're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that where the present are absent we may be accepted for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This word appear talks about a real, visible, physical, personal appearance. I'm going to stand before Jesus. And so are you. If nothing else ought to, I don't know if frightens the right word or not, but if nothing else would cause us to want to live for him, it ought to be that. I'm going to stand before the Lord. I'm going to give an account for my life as I stand before him. There is absolutely no way a child of God can escape this judgment. Because look at what he says. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What's the purpose of it? That we may receive the things done in the body. That's to obtain things done in the body, whether good or bad. And what it talks about is the lasting nature of this judgment. So we're not going to be able to get to heaven, stand before the judgment seat of Christ and change a few things. Oh, well, Lord, I meant to. Uh, 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 Lord, you remember I was going to, and then, no, it, it's, it's done. And this loss or reward may have its place in the millennial reign of Christ and may have its place in the bride of Christ. And again, it says whether it be good or bad. 
And here's the degree of that judgment. If you look at Romans chapter 14, verse 12, he talks about the same thing there. And he says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That word account is the word logos, which generally is translated word. Jesus is the logos. He is the living word of God, okay? But this is a bookkeeping term. We're going to give word. We're going to stand before the Lord and we are going to answer to him. It talks about a complete and unforced accounting of our lives. Do you realize what happens in this life? I do it, you do it. Folks, we all do it. We make excuses. Well, you know, and when I hear people say, well, you know, I'm just getting ready for an excuse. When I say, well, you know, I'm getting ready for an excuse. We're real good at thinking up excuses. You know what? When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, none of those excuses are going to stand. Amen. Well, Lord, you know, old brother Jim just didn't always preach like I wanted him to, and so, no, it won't work. You know, sister so-and-so didn't do, no. Remember, brother Truman touched on this this morning a little bit. Remember, after Adam sinned, what he said to God? Lord, this woman you gave me is basically what he said. And I declare that men ever since that time have been blaming their wives for the things that they do, which is their fault. The men, not the wives. We are good at making excuses, but those excuses will not stand at the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, listen to what it says in Matthew 12, verse 36. Jesus said, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. You know what? That scares me. Amen. Have you spoken any idle words, preacher? I know I have. I'm not going to say probably I have. I know I have. In all of my years, I've spoken at least one or two or more, right? And so have you. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Our very thoughts. God knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you thought yesterday, what you'll be thinking tomorrow. And one of these days, the very, how would you like to know? I hope, I've always said I hope the judgment seat of Christ is a private judgment. Because I don't want to stand with y'all there and hear the Lord's judgment on my life. Okay? But how would you like for every thought that you've ever had to be displayed up here on the screen? Would that thrill you to have that happen? Well, I'm not getting any amens there. Why? Because sometimes we think things that we shouldn't think. Okay? The judgment seat of Christ, I think, will be a showing of why we didn't receive certain rewards. Do you realize that I believe that every reward that's listed in the Word of God is available to every child of God? But we disqualify ourselves from different ones, and that's why I believe the Apostle John said in 2 John 8, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Just live so when you stand before that judgment seat of Christ, you'll hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Here's your reward, okay? And so that's the first reason. Because of that 
anticipation of reward. But then there's an awesome respect for our sovereign. Look at what he says in verses 11 through 13. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. This word terror is the word phobos. Sound familiar? Phobia, okay? It is the word phobos, which means fright, fear, or dismay. That's another motivation for serving God. Now, I know we are supposed to reverence God, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but we're talking here about a dread of displeasing God. Should we dread displeasing God? Certainly. He is my heavenly Father. Jesus Christ is my Savior. There ought to be a dread. I ought to love them so much, I don't ever want to do anything to displease my heavenly Father. That'll keep us vigilant. Because it's no light thing to realize that we're going to stand one of these days in that place of judgment. When I was growing up, there was always one thing that was worse to me than a spanking. Now, I didn't like spankings. Some say I didn't get enough. That's fine with me. But there was one thing that was worse. And you know what that was? To hear mother or dad tell me how much I had disappointed them. Okay? Oh, that, that ripped my heart out. Hey, you can spank my backside and that'll hurt for a little while and then I'm over it. But when you look me in the face and say, you have really disappointed us, you just might as well reach in and grab my heart. And we ought to be that way toward God. I don't want to hear God say, you've disappointed me, Jim. I want to hear him say, well done. Every faithful child of God knows the fear of the Lord. Or we should. See, we know what God can do. You just read the Old Testament. I said, I think the Old Testament's a warning. Here's what I can do. All right? Look at Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. By the way, that's the God of the right side of the Bible, taking care of that, all right? And they tried to lie to God, the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter says. And what happened to them? Boom, they're gone. They dropped dead right there. All right? We know what God can do. First John chapter 5. John says there's a sin unto death in verse 13. What is it? I don't know exactly. I have an opinion. And my opinion is worth whatever value you want to put on it. I kind of believe that a child of God can get so out of fellowship with God and become such a detriment to the cause of Christ that God will say, you're better off for me to take you home. And God will just take us home. And we know what God will do, that God doesn't, God doesn't play around with this thing like we do, okay? Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful means terrible. It's a frightful thing. Now, the, if you look at, verse, at chapter 10 in Hebrews, what's the immediate context? Intentional disobedience toward God. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. Because he later names in that 10th chapter some things that we do when we intentionally disobey God. We walk on Jesus. We count the blood of his covenant. Just a common thing. Okay? And we do despite through the Spirit of grace who is the Holy Spirit. See, I believe the Holy Spirit will lead a child of God to be here on Sunday. Amen. And Sunday night and Wednesday night. And when we say, no, I don't want to, then we're just doing those things to Christ and to his blood. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced the chastening of the Lord? I believe I have. I could tell you stories, and I don't have time to tell stories, but I believe I have 
suffered the chastening hand of God as a child of God. And you know what? I don't ever want it to happen again. I mean, as a child growing up, I didn't just try to get spankings. Something I did, man, to get them. As a child of God, I know what I can do to avoid those spankings. God, and by the way, God chastens those he loves. God chastens every one of his children. We know that. That's what the word of God says in Hebrews chapter 12. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You know, there are people who will say, well, I love my child too much to spank my child, to chasten my child. There's a word for that, baloney. Proverbs 13, 24, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. And betimes means while there's time. You know, there comes a time in a child's life when that child's big enough that your spanking is not going to faze them. Amen. You can tell them they disappointed you and tear their heart out, but your spanking is not going to faze them. The Lord loves us. That's why he chastens us. And so we need to learn the proper attitude toward God. What's the proper attitude toward God? Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, the reverent respect of God. God is who he is. He is God, folks. He made everything. And he sent Jesus to die that we might have everlasting life. And he ought to be number one in our hearts. You say, well, what about my family? No, God first. Because see, if your relationship with God is right and your fellowship with God is right, everything else is going to be right. We should be faithful to God for, because of who he is and because of his great might. And then there's another motive for serving God. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because we're sure of judgment and because we are aware of what disobedience brings, we serve God and we persuade men. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I'm afraid there's, some, uh, there, I'm, I'm afraid there's a lot of saved people who are going to be standing by bonfires in heaven if they are saved. Because so many have the attitude, well, I can accept Christ, I can be saved, I can do what I want to do, I can be faithful or not faithful, and one of these days I'm going to go to heaven and get rewards. Well, you might not be sending them on ahead if that's your belief. You don't understand liberty if that's your belief. You don't understand grace and you don't understand security if that's your belief. And what are all these things supposed to persuade us to do, or encourage us to do? To persuade men. That's win with words. We're to live for the Lord. And I've heard people say, and I understand what they're saying, your life may be the only Bible some people read. And that may be true. But folks, God gave us a mouth also. What does 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 say? I'm not going to turn over there. I'll sort of paraphrase it. We live in such a way that people ask a reason of the hope that is in us. And he said, then we can do what? We can give a testimony. We can give a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He imagine, I saw this one day, there's a big black car. I don't know if that makes any difference or not. Had a bumper sticker on it that says something about not perfect, but saved or something like that, you know. And a woman that was driving, it was looking like this. 
And I thought, that's not a real good ad, you know. You look like you're mad at the world and you go tell somebody you're a Christian that you know Christ as Savior. Don't you want to be saved too? I'm not real sure they're going to listen to you a whole lot. We ought to show people that a child of God can enjoy this life. Amen. We don't have to do the things of the world. We don't have to go around in the constant mully grubs. We don't have to go around looking like we were weaned on pickle juice. We look like we like where we are. God has saved me. God has blessed me. No, I'm not, you know, multi-billionaire, but you know what? I got a roof over my head. I got food on the table and I got clothes on my back. Amen. Thank you, Lord. There are some in so-called Christianity that say, and Joel says this, by the way. I heard him say this. God doesn't want you to just live like that. God wants you to be, you know, up here, be wealthy and all that. Well, again, baloney. One of the most faithful men to God we can read about in the Bible lost everything he had. His family, his fortune, his friends. Yes, God eventually restored it all to Job, but he went through a period of time and he didn't even know what was going on. Knowledge of coming judgment and the possibility of chastisement in this life and a reverence for God should overcome any desire to selfish living. He says we're manifest to God. God knows our hearts. God knows why I preach. And I'm going to tell you, quite honestly, there was a period of time I preached because I had to. God might zap me if I don't. And I have some stories about that, but I'm not going to tell them. Now I preach because I want to. And then here's the other, here's the third reason for this faithful service of God. And I call it an affectionate regard for souls. Look at what he says in verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Another reason for faithfulness in the face of liberty and eternal security is this constraining love of Christ. Now this word in the language means to hold or keep together, to confine, to secure, to urge, to impel. Webster says it's this, to force in an unnatural manner. What causes you to get up early on a Sunday morning and go up there to that building with all those other people and listen to some guy stand up there and, you know, sling his hands and yell and all of that? The love of Christ. What causes you to struggle during the week to prepare something to stand up there and to present to those people? The love of Christ. What causes you when the offering plate is passed to put something in it, whether it's little or whether it's a lot, the love of Christ. Amen. What causes you to want to talk to people who don't want to listen to you about their eternal souls? The love of Christ. Everything that we do as children of God comes out of the love of Christ. And that's talking about his love for us his love in us and his love going out of us toward other people. Can we love people that we don't know? We better. We don't have to love what they do. I tell you folks, I don't love what the abortionist does. I don't love what the drug dealer does. But I better love their souls. God loves their souls. Jesus died for the abortionist. Jesus died for the homosexual. Jesus died for the drug dealer. 
And if they will turn to God in repentance and by faith apply the blood of Jesus, they'll be saved. I think God will expect them to give up what they're doing. But the love of Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Isn't that simple? How do I show my love for the Lord? I obey him. See, love is the best motive for service. John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciple. If we serve out of love, we give evidence. If we have the love of Christ in us, showing out of us, we give proof that we know Christ as Savior. We prove that we're his disciples. It glorifies. Jesus said before he went out into the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested to go to the cross, he said, but that the world may know that I love the Father, even so I do. He knew what was going to happen, and he went anyway. He said, because I want people to know I love my heavenly Father. And it unifies in John 17, verses 20 through 21. Jesus has prayed for each and every New Testament church that we will have a unity about us. I'm thankful we have that unity here, folks. I don't ever want Satan messing it up, and that's why I pray like I do. Lord, keep Satan in check. We have something here in this church that many, many churches do not have. Amen. Among other things, we have people that love their pastor. I like that part of it. Well, we love each other too, okay? And verse 15 says that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him. Christ died for you that you might have life. Now it's wrong to use that life to serve yourself. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I'm dead. I died. I've been crucified with Christ. I was nailed to the cross with Christ when I accepted him as Savior. Now I've got to count Paul dead, but Christ alive in me. And he said, that's the way I live. Living unto oneself would be what? It would be, well, seeking pleasure or gain, reputation above God and as the controlling principle of your life. It would be Securing the advancement of our own purposes at all costs while sacrificing the Lord's church. Okay? And there's some preachers that do that, by the way. It would be refusing to help spread the gospel for fear of what it will cost me. Somebody may laugh at me. Somebody may make fun of me. Somebody may say, the worst thing they could do, say no to me. Using your salvation to elevate self and not to honor God. Living to Christ is the very opposite. It seeks God's honor and God's glory and Christ's honor and glory first above everything else. Lord, get glory from my life. It means using our time and talents to exalt him. Not wearing them out in the world and then bring them into church. So I want to sing for God now. Well, you just wasted your talent in the world. Now you want to. It desires to tell others of Christ regardless of their reaction. Why? Because they need him. It denies self in order to better serve him. Why should we be careful not to use liberty for an occasion to the flesh? Number one, Christ died for us. We would have no liberty at all without Christ dying for us. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. And that was God's stamp of approval. I've accepted this payment price. And then we have the glorious promise that he is coming back. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. 
Let's wrap it up. How can I live to be ready for the judgment seat of Christ and to escape the chastisement of God and to show my love for the Lord? Number one, live a faithful and obedient life. Well, how do I learn to live an obedient life? Get into the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Come to church. Sit in a Sunday school class. Listen to the preaching. Come Sunday night and hear us talk about the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And other things that we teach. James 4, 17, what did James say? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? It is sin. Number two, seek the forgiveness of past sins. I, I think a lot of people live under the weight of past sins. Well, I did such and such back when, and now, listen. 1 John 1, 9 says what? If we'll confess our sins, homologio, say the same thing as, God said it was sin already, you just need to say it's sin and agree with God. If we'll confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? And cleanse us from A-L-L, all unrighteousness. That means what you did in the past. He wants us to acknowledge our sin before him. And then here's the other one. Take up your cross daily. That's what Luke says. That's what it says in Luke. Take up, Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. So you can't say, well, I'm taking up my cross for the Lord and I'm going to live for him now. No, when you get up tomorrow morning, you've got to take up your cross. Amen. When you get up Tuesday morning, you've got to take up your cross. Wednesday morning, take up your cross. And every day, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be obedient to him. I'm going to do what he says. I want to be faithful to him. And then, you know what? Now, I'm going to tell you, for a long time, I didn't like the thought of standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm still not, because of some things I've done, not crazy about it. But you know, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting, and I want to hear, and I hope I will, and well done. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It should not be a terror to us, but it ought to be a wonderful motivation for living daily, taking up our cross daily for the Lord Jesus Christ.